Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Travis D. Steimling to discuss his book, Nashville Cats, Record Production in Music City, which tells the tale of Nashville's legendary A-team of session musicians. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Travis Steinle, the author of Nashville Cats, Record Production in Music City. Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. And this is a really important book. I'm so glad you wrote it. I really enjoyed it. The Nashville Session Cats, immortalized by John Sebastian and the Eleven Spoonful in the song of the same name, comprised really four generations of some of the most important session musicians in 20th century American music. This this crew of guys were comparable to the Wrecking Crew in L.A. or the Funk Brothers in Motown, Booker T. and the M.G.s, the Muscle Souls, Shoal Swampers. They even poached a set of muscles. The original Muscle Shoal rhythm section got poached by the Nashville A-team and, and came to town. And the way to describe it, there were actually four key generations of Nashville cats um, in, in this era from the post-war to the 1980s in Nashville. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the original A-team uh, were, were folks who had could have already been in Nashville for a while. Some of them were associated with the Grand Ole Opry. Um, some of them you know, were, were side musicians in other people's bands. And they were there actually kind of building what we now know as the Nashville recording industry. Um, these are people like Harold Bradley, a great guitar player who, uh, who was around from the very beginning. Bob Moore, a great bass player who uh, actually just passed away last week. Uh, he was in his 90s. Um, and, and these musicians kind of helped build uh, a reputation for the Nashville, uh, the Nashville recording scene. By the, the middle of, to the end of the 1950s, there's a, a you know, kind of an expanded group of musicians, including people like Floyd Kramer, who had a big hit uh, as a solo artist with a song called uh, Last Date. He's a great pianist. Um, and then you know, subsequent generations kind of came along uh, as the Nashville scene exploded, really. Um, they went from having you know, a couple of rented studios, you know, kind of makeshift studios, uh, including one at a, a, hotel, uh, a hotel downtown in Nashville, um, to having a, you know, what we now know as Music Row, uh, all in the span of about 20 years. And as those studios grew, there was demand for more and more musicians, more work. Um, so some of those musicians who were active, like in the late 40s, continued to play sessions into the 1980s as these new generations came on to fill in the gaps. And these guys recorded an enormous number of tracks. Like they, they estimate that um, many members of the National A team participated in the creation of as many as 80,000 tracks, 20 songs a week over 20 years, four songs per three hour session. So. Basically, anybody who's ever been in a grocery store has probably heard Harold Bradley play guitar. Yeah, that's actually that's how I start the book. It's a really fun uh, fun story. I, luckily, uh, Charlie McCoy helped set me up with Harold. I had some questions about about bass playing, 
And uh, when Harold and I met, I obviously knew who he was. He was, you know, a really important figure in, in, in my life. But uh, he brought me his resume. It had all sorts of interesting tidbits on it, like he was an expert uh, rated water skier. But you know, on, on page two of this five-page document, he, he listed that he played on the, the three greatest Christmas country songs or Christmas songs of all time. It's uh, Have a Holly Jolly Christmas, Rock It Around the Christmas Tree, and uh, Jingle Bell Rock. And so, yeah, I, I make the case if you've gone to the grocery store, regardless of your faith or your your socioeconomic background, you have heard him play. Uh, and truth be told, you've heard him play a lot more than just on those three. Uh, the, the way that the sessions were set up, though, was really, really uh, interesting. As the recording industry started to kind of focus its attention on Nashville, uh, this would be in the, the early 1950s, the Musicians Union actually set up a schedule that is more or less in place today so that all sessions in the city happen at the same time. There's a 10 a.m. slot and a 2 p.m. slot and a 6 p.m. slot. These musicians would play at least two of, maybe three, and sometimes even do an overnight session uh, if somebody was coming in uh, to do those. And those sessions, they were expected for a country session or a pop session to do four sides or four songs in that session. Um, if it was a gospel session, a lot of times that was even even more because the budgets were lower. Sometimes they would do eight songs in a session. You could really do almost a whole album uh, in just two sessions. And they did wow. it two or three sessions a day, five days a week. And many of these musicians that did it for 20 years or more. So, yeah, we, we actually play a game in my, in my family. We put on uh, the Willie's Roadhouse station in the car and try to, like, find how many songs did it take before we hear so-and-so. Uh, and I, my, my family doesn't care much about country music, but I make them play the game anyway. Um, and, and it's like every other song or every third song, it's like, oh, there's so-and-so again. You know, it's, it's, it's Charlie McCoy, Dave. every third song, it's going to be Charlie, I can guarantee you. Um, <laughs> and, and you have an explanation for the necessity of using session musicians to record. I mean, because... Going back to around the time of the monkeys, it seems like Baby Boomer fans had a real kind of hate-hate relationship with the concept of session musicians. They wanted everything to be the Beatles, where it's, you know, Fab Four guys making the record all by themselves. And this idea of an assembly line of music seemed to strike a lot of people the wrong way. But over the past 20 years or so, we started to celebrate uh, the great session shops. But why was it that they needed to record so much so quickly? Well, the country music industry specifically was really booming in the 50s and 60s, uh, but more generally, popular music was, was booming you know, kind of across the board. Uh, partly, it's actually the baby boomers and their parents. Uh, it was a you know, post-war boom in wealth, and people were buying uh, home hi-fi systems, and, and, they're, and they're loading up with new recordings, so there's always a demand for new content. Radio stations are starting to do record shows, which had actually been kind of forbidden by union regu regulations prior to the Second World War. You always had to have live music on the radio, but that starts to relax to now the point where you never hear live music on the radio anymore. And so the radio stations are constantly demanding new content. Uh, and, and so that meant that they needed to have some sort of uh, something novel, something exciting to keep radio listeners attention and keep record buyers buying stuff. Uh, there's actually a really interesting book 
by a, a musicologist named Albert Zach, in which he argues that, in fact, like the 1950s, all of the stylistic change was just driven by novelty that the market needed. Um, and we see that in Nashville, for sure. Every All these country artists, the styles are changing quickly uh, because they're trying to keep radio, uh, radio listeners' attention. Now, the other part of that is that this isn't really the beginning. The 1950s and into the early 60s is the time when Nashville becomes the undisputed center for country music. And Chicago could have claimed it earlier. They had the National Bar Dance. Um, L.A. could have claimed it for a while. There were certainly places in Texas, uh, you know, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that could have easily been uh, major centers for country music. But uh, Nashville became the country music center because of the recording, but also because of the Country Music Association, which was formed in the 60s as a way to promote country music to radio stations. And in doing that, they tried to promote that country music was music for sophisticated people with, uh, with wealth. Uh, so that advertisers would want to buy spots on those stations. And so we see for country music in the 60s, it's a boom time. The radio stations are picking country as their format and demanding constant content. Uh, so these session musicians were just, they were, they were always working. And that's just all the country stuff. We're not, we haven't even gotten scratched the surface on like the demands that Elvis would put on Nashville folks. Uh, so there was so much need for content. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is um, from the first generation of the Nashville A-Team. This is Red Foley's Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy, Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy. And listen for Ferris Corsi, who was one of the first drummers on the Nashville scene. And, and when we get back, we can talk about the sort of love-hate or hate-hate relationship Nashville's had with drums. But let's hear Ferris Corsi uh, on the leg slaps and Grady Martin on guitar and Billy Robinson on steel guitar. This was recorded at the Tulane Hotel in Castle Studios in 1950. Red Foley's Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy. And that was Red Foley's Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy featuring Ferris Corsi on Leg Slaps, the great Nashville percussionist, Grady Martin on guitar and Billy Robinson on steel. Why did Nashville struggle with drummers? Tell us a little bit about the aversion initially with drummers and country music. Yeah, the drums play an interesting role in country music. Uh, you know, it's, to me, it's still a little unclear as to what the actual source of the anxiety was. But we do know that when Bob Wills brought his Texas Playboys to play on the Opry back in the 1930s, um, they forbid him from having a drummer on stage. Uh, and, and so that kind of became the norm at the Opry uh, all the way through the 1960s. Uh, I've heard stories that the bashful brother Oswald, the steel player in Roy Acuff's band, uh, would go around saying, you know, we didn't have it in the 30s. We're not going to have it in the 50s. Um, no drums allowed. Um, I think that it probably has something to do with the association with, with jazz uh, and concerns about race and country music, but I don't have you know, any smoking gun evidence to, to, to support that argument other than 
Um, it seems it seems likely to me. Um, but you know, in terms of um, you know, they had some workarounds that were kind of fun. Uh, a base, there's a bass player named Lightning Chance who did a, a number of sessions. It was actually a better known better known as an opera musician um, who he played double bass, you know, upright bass. But he put a drum head on the upper right quadrant of the bass and would pluck the strings with his thumb to get the, the bass notes and then do what we call stirring the soup or kind of like swishing around with a drum brush that he wove between his fingers so he could do both at the same time. So kind of a nice little workaround. People use that, uh, you know, all through the, the 40s and 50s. Um, you see like that Chattanooga shine boy slapping things on, the, on, on your leg, using body percussion with a workaround. Um, in, in the recording scene, the challenge with drums was actually that they could be too loud and make the recording not work. Back in the days when they were still recording directly to uh, to a disc and not to tape, um, a drum sound could be so loud that it would actually make the needle jump off of the recording blank and it would ruin the take and they'd have to start over. And so they, would, they started out and those used some body percussion and let's adapt instruments so that they sound like the drums. Then eventually we see uh, Buddy Harmon, who's probably the, the, the biggest of the, the Nashville session drummers. He would use brushes kind of lightly. And then eventually, if he play a rock a rock session, he might use a brush and a stick, um, but never, you know, kind of a full drum set. Always pretty light on, uh, on the drums, just to make the recording work. Uh, nothing like what we hear now uh, out, of, out of contemporary country, which has so much drum, uh, such a drum presence. Yes, it does. And so this Castle Studio there at the Tulane Hotel, at their peak, they made half of the country top 30 in 1952, but they weren't long for this world. The Tulane Hotel was condemned, and some of the players started building their own studios. Tell us about the Bradley Brothers and also what RCA did. Yeah, so the, well, the, you know, the Castle Studio was, was to, to start with, that's a really fascinating uh, project studio that was created by a couple of people who were engineers at WSM, the station that hosts the Grand Ole Opry. And they were shut down not only because the two lane was, was condemned, but also the, the WSM kind of put some pressure on them and said, look, either you, you work for WSM or you have your recording studio, you can't do both. Um, but a lot of, for, for your listeners' reference, a lot of the Hank Williams uh, hits were recorded at Castle. And so just to kind of get that sound in, in your mind. Um, the Bradley brothers, Harold and Owen, uh, are, are uh, they built some of the first uh, lasting studios in, in Nashville. Started out in a little, uh, a little house in um, Hillsborough Village neighborhood of Nashville. Eventually bought a house on what is now Music Row uh, and built a studio down in the basement. And that's where Patsy Klein cut a, a number of her big hits. And then added on with a Quantit Hut, uh, you know, old Army surplus building, and turned that into a, a state-of-the-art facility. Almost every country record on DECA recorded from the mid-50s through uh, the middle of the 1960s was cut at the, at the what was called the Quantit Hut Studio, or the Bradley Studio. Um, RCA uh, was a, trying to get into the country scene a little bit. Uh, they they had uh, they had some success, but not like Decca had. And a fellow named Steve Scholes 
uh, was their their A and R person, the artist and repertoire person, uh, convinces uh, convinces RCA to invest in some sessions in Nashville. They record they rent a space, release the space from the Methodist Church, which has a, a state of the art multimedia production facility at the time, and from there prove that there's there's value in using Nashville musicians and being close to the Opry, that sort of thing. Well, a little bit later, we're looking at, I think it's 55, 56, uh, and, and I don't have the dates in front of me. I can't recall the specifics, but uh, your listeners will probably know uh, that Sun Records had this artist named Elvis Presley. And Elvis was, was breaking you know, all sorts of sales records and was nationally uh, loved and supported. And Sam Phillips, the guy who owned Sun, sold Elvis's contract to RCA Records. Well, RCA immediately saw a return on their investment and decided that because Elvis didn't really want to go to New York to record and that sort of thing, they would invest in a permanent studio that was closer to him. And so they built what's now known as RCA Studio B, which you can actually go tour. You go to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, you can buy a, an add-on to your tour there. They'll take you down on a bus and, and let you stand in the spot where Elvis uh, recorded some of his hits. Um, and so these two having these kind of two permanent facilities that were literally a parking lot apart from each other um, made it so that session musicians could work that 10 a.m. session at RCA, take a lunch break, and then go work the two o'clock session at Bradley's and, and not have to travel clear across town. Uh, and so those studios are very, very important. It says RCA Studio B is still there. There's, they built on another building in the, uh, I think the late sixties. Um, it's much larger, but it's also part of that same complex. And then, uh, Columbia Records bought the Quonset Hut and used it for many, many years. It's now a project studio for students at Belmont University, so they can actually learn how to record in the house that uh, the Bradleys built. That's awesome. And let's hear our next song. This is a song that many people consider the first great example of the Nashville sound, which was created in response to the challenges of rock and roll from people like Elvis Presley uh, and Jerry Lee Lewis. And this is Jim Reeves' Four Walls. Listen for Floyd Kramer on piano and the Jordan Ayers on backing vocals. This is a Chet Atkins production recorded right there at RCA. Out where the bright lights are glowing You're drawn like a moth a flame You laugh while the wine's overflowing While I sit and whisper your name Four Walls together. And that was Jim Reeves pioneering the Nashville sound with the song Four Walls Floyd Kramer on piano, Jordan Ayers uh, doing backing vocals. This was controversial at the time and continues to be. Someone like Bill, the great Bill C. Malone, the historian of, of country music, really resistant to this Nashville sound. This this There's this idea, and I like the way that you get the sort of uh, incipient sexism of this, that, that there's this idea that there's hardcore country and then there's the soft shell stuff that's just aimed at housewives and and the implication being that housewives don't have any any aesthetic judgment and will just 
you know, listen to anything that's shoveled their way. How do you feel about the Nashville sound looking back on it from our standpoint, 2021? Well, I, I love it. And, and I, as a, as a country music fan, as a country music scholar, I absolutely love this music. Um, I'm a musician myself and I have such respect uh, and admiration for um, how little they have to play to make it uh, to make a convincing recording. You listen to, to Four Walls, and it's not over the top virtuosic playing. It's a few notes here and there. You know, the lead guitar parts aren't showy. Uh, you know, the, the the piano parts aren't showy. But it, it's but it all supports the the vocals, and those vocals are are heart wrenching. If you listen to the words and you listen to how almost I always say kind of very directly Jim Reeves sings those. And there's not a lot of, of you know, ex, you know exceptional like, gesturing toward big emotions. It's just very matter of fact. I think that is tremendous country music. Um, the hard shell soft core or the, the, the hardcore soft shell dichotomy, which was actually uh, originally uh, posited by a sociologist named Richard Peterson, um, is definitely something that we have uh, in country music scholarship work to unpack and problematize um, because it does have this, this kind of gendered, both implicit and explicit gendered notion that, uh, you know, the soft shell country is mostly for women and hardcore country is for, is for men or it expresses more masculine things. Um, you know, a lot of people see soft, the soft uh, shell stuff as being uh, a commercial sellout uh, versus the hardcore stuff. But, the reality is, and, and Peterson shows this really convincingly in, in his book, uh, Creating Country Music, he, the point is that country music, the industry, has always sold both of those. And so any notion that we get that somebody's selling out or, you know, it, it's bogus when you figure that these same players, these same, I, mean, I don't know the exact date uh, off the top of my head of the Four wall sessions, but I uh, can't February 1957. <laughs> Okay, there we go. Some of those same players later in the day went and played on a honky tonk session. They played on a hardcore session, right? And so I can't imagine, you know, like if we if we look at that in context, you see that that dichotomy really breaks down. It's all about perception. It's somebody's opinion about country music. It has nothing to do with the ways that uh, the people who produced it would have thought about it. Absolutely. And another myth that you uh, break down in the book is is one that's promulgated in John Sebastian's song, this notion of the Nashville cats as these sort of naturally gifted, uh, you know, sort of hick savants who can just play from the time they're two, been playing since these babies, could play with very little effort. But in fact, a lot of these people were bringing all kinds of backgrounds and pedigrees. You divide it into sort of two categories, informal and formal backgrounds. Tell us a little bit about some of the varied musical backgrounds we come across uh, in this oh, yeah. national one of the, team. One of, one of the things that, that really got me going that doing this research was recognizing that in the session that involves string players, and here I mean because violins, violas, and cellos, we would have had people reading multiple notations, multiple notational styles, and coming from different backgrounds. I'm thinking, you know, as a country musician, like, I play with people who don't read a note of music, great musicians, but who don't read a note of music. And I work with other musicians who know chords, but might not be able to show you what notes they're playing on, on an instrument. 
And then I work, I actually teach at a school of music with classical musicians. And I'm, I'm classically trained myself. And so I can think about, you know, round notes, as, they, as we might call them. Um, and so I was like, how did all of these people get in the same room? And then even more importantly, how did they even work together? Uh, and so I dug into their backgrounds. You know, a lot of the musicians in the string section were classically trained, had conservatory degrees. Um, one of them who uh, became kind of my favorite person to write about, uh, a gentleman named Brenton Bolton Banks. He was the only uh, black session musician to, to regularly contribute to the Nashville scene. Um, he had a, a degree from the Cleveland Institute of Music. He taught um, taught music theory at Tennessee State University, which is an HBCU just down the street from Music Row. He was a very accomplished jazz pianist who actually recorded with uh, vibraphonist Gary Burke on Gary Burton's first album when he was, I think Gary was like 16. Um, so to think about him being in the same room as somebody who grew up playing on the barn dances like Thelma Smith who played rhythm guitar on a bunch of sessions. Um, I don't know that she could read music, but I do know that she was accomplished enough to have been a regular on the Opry playing in Roy Acuff's band. Um, and then she played multiple instruments. She played bass, guitar, banjo. She did kind of a, a pretty wide variety of things. And so I was really curious to see like, how would those people all communicate with each other? And so that led me down the road of thinking about notation, and I got I got super deep into it. It was all sorts of fun. But I actually found some archival documents uh, written by a member of the Jordanaires named Neil Matthews, in which he had transcribed an Elvis session that, that the Jordanaires sang. And what they used was uh, something called the Nashville Number System, which uses uh, numbers to represent the chords in a in a scale. Uh, so one is in the key of C major, one is C, two is D, so on and so on. But then they would write the melodies that they needed to sing using the shape notes that you would find in old gospel songbooks, because the Jordanaires got their start as gospel singers. So they knew how to read this other kind of unique notational style. And I just became overly fascinated by all of this, you know, because as a, as a working musician, uh, I recognize you do things on the fly that suit you so you can do the session, right? Or so that you can do the gig. Um, and it had to be pure chaos at times, just trying to figure out how do you, how do you communicate this thing to somebody who doesn't understand what you're talking about? Um, and so yeah, there's a whole chapter in the book uh, that really focuses in on all of that. Yeah, and I, I was really fascinated by the story of Brenton Banks, especially because a lot of the classical string players, and this is something you you come across when you read about you know Motown using string string sections on on their R and B and pop records, is that a lot of classical musicians don't really have the sense of rhythm that you need to play American vernacular music, whether it's jazz or country or R and B or rock and roll. And somebody like Brenton Banks who, because he was a jazz pianist as well as a classical violinist, he was sort of frequently treated as the string master because he could get get the string section on the beat on time. And and he worked really closely with Anita Kerr, who uh, of the Anita Kerr singers, who was one of the few sort of arrangers there. I want to take a quick sponsor break, and then when we get back, I want you to tell us about one of the differences between Nashville and L.A. and New York, which was Nashville's use of what they call head arrangements. But let's hear from our sponsor first, and then you can tell us about that when we get back. So like I was saying, 
in a place like New York or Los Angeles, the recording process with session musicians really hinged on the arranger who wrote out the arrangements on sheet music. And these musicians um, frequently with jazz or classical training were experts at reading what was on the paper, sight reading it, playing it frequently the first time they saw it, playing it perfectly. But in Nashville, they had a different system. They did use sheet music for the string sections. And as you said, the um, session guys, starting with the Jordanaires, had had what they called, you know, the Nashville system of writing a more informal system. But how did somebody like Anita Kerr, who was the arranger on those sessions, do work as sort of the middle person? And how did somebody like Grady Martin figure out what to play? <laughs> That's a really a really good question, and uh, it, it takes me to a story that was related to me by a, an arranger named Bergen White. Uh, the, the Grady Martin story is great. He was uh, Bergen was an arranger uh, who, who uh, is probably best known for some of his work with the Oak Ridge Boys in the late seventies and early eighties. But he was a, a young session musician and arranger in the sixties. And Grady was Grady Martin was one of the best guitar players uh, you know, ever to to, to try. Um, you probably heard him if you know Marty Robbins' El Paso. He plays all the the classical guitar stuff there. And by the way, that was the second take on a borrowed guitar um, the, when you hear that. So think about that. But <laughs> Bergen, uh, uh, Bergen had this great story about doing a session with uh, with someone, and, and Grady Martin was on the session, and he had this written notation for the string players, and, and he had you know, they had charts for the, the rhythm players. And, and uh, Dark, or he, 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 said, uh, he says to Grady, he says, you know, whatever, when we get to this point, just go ahead and lay out here, you know, pass it. They go in to cut the, the thing, and, and Grady just played all over it, played through the tacit part and everything. And um, so then, you know, the producer sends it back out and says, go talk to Grady. And he goes back out and he says, well, Grady, this part here, you're not supposed to play at all. And so then the, the next time they do another take, Grady doesn't play at all. Not in the beginning, not the tacit part, not at the end. <laughs> And uh, so he's like, I guess I'm going to go back out there. Producer says, yeah, you do. So he goes back out there. He says, now I want you to play here. You don't play here. And then you play you play again here. And Grady looks at one of the other musicians on the session and says, now you see, we are only supposed to play where it is designated for us to play. And you know, so clearly he's like kind of giving <laughs> this guy a hard time. He's this young arranger. But, but it does go to show you that, you know, there were notational challenges there, at least. Um, Anita Kerr, she's she's the unspoken, the unsung hero of the Nashville scene. Um, a lot of the sessions that Chet Atkins gets credit for, Anita Kerr was actually the producer on. And Anita could could write music in Western notation. She knew the Nashville system. Um, she was also really good. She led this backing vocal group, which was a highly trained vocal group. She was good at being that middle person between the classically trained folks and the rhythm section players who maybe came, uh, most of whom came with, with uh, kind of a more uh, on the road or informal training. She could talk to both, both groups and get them to work together. Um, in fact, the cover of the book has a really great picture uh, from a Roy Orbison session with five string players around a single mic. One of them looking up at Anita, like, is this how we're supposed to do it? And Anita's there kind of, you know, giving them guidance. And so is Bob Moore, the great bass player. They're all trying to communicate, like, what are we going to do in this session? Um, 
And so Anita was really kind of kind of the, the glue that held it all together. And unfortunately, one of the challenges I had in doing this work is that a lot of the paperwork around these sessions is either missing or it's been destroyed or it's just it's unclear. So it's hard to say exactly which sessions she produced but didn't get credit for. But according to the oral histories, the people I talked to, they say that you know she should have been credited with hundreds of, of uh Chad Atkinson sessions that just didn't get credit due to, I guess, the politics of the time. Well, I appreciate your work, uh, you know, helping to give her a little bit of overdue credit that she got and not to take anything away from Chet Atkins. And it's also interesting to me that Chet Atkins, who we think of as this great uh, jazz and classical influenced country guitar player, he's in the category of what you call informally trained musicians because he comes up learning by doing, playing on the road with the Carter sisters and Homer and Jethro and others. And just some crazy backgrounds from some of the other musicians. There's one in particular, um, the bass player from Connecticut, who uh, started out with minstrel groups and then played with Hawaiian groups and then plays with Bob Crosby's swing band and ultimately then finds his way to WLLS in Chicago and starts playing country and then, you know, winds his way to Nashville, it's just, it's a real stew here. I mean, people are bringing a lot to the table from all kinds of different backgrounds. And a lot of these guys weren't even country music fans. That's right. They were just working to, to uh, you know, essentially make money uh, doing whatever it was that was the next, the next great gig. Yeah. You're, ta- you're talking there about Ernie Newton, who his, his showbiz career started when he was just a kid. Um, and yeah, crossing paths with all sorts of folks, Les Paul and, and, and others. Um, you get a sense that it, it, at least in uh, you know, early, early 20th century, there was a lot of room for a kid who wanted to learn things to, uh, to make a go of it. And you know, Ernie, Ernie Newton was not uh, you know, terribly sought after session player. But he was the kind of musician that they would call on if they needed a basis for a third session that was happening somewhere else. So you hear him a lot on, like, uh, I think he played a lot of Star Day sessions and, uh, and some of the other smaller labels that were around at the same time. Yeah, and his advantage over many of the road musicians, and this is also one of the reasons that a lot of road bands didn't re- play in the studio, is that bassists tended to be comedians. It would it would often be, you know, the kids are putting a band together, and the kid that gets picked last gets stuck with bass, and is expected to sort of be uh, the character, you know, and, and, and do maybe a little blackface back in the very old days, but even into the Elvis era, Bill Black, you know, was... was um, the comedian on stage to the point that it drove Colonel Parker to basically exile him from the whole system. So Ernie, Ernie had that over, but what was the reason that so many road musicians didn't fit into the session process? Well, you know, being on the road is, it requires a different set of skills than being in a session. You know, for a you know, road musician, there's a, there's a certain amount of, uh, I guess there's room for mistake. I would say is the big thing. There's room for mistakes being a road musician because nothing that you do on the road is going to be like preserved, right? So if you clam a note or you know you, you're off a little bit in your tempo or your your intonation or something like that, you know you move on. And as as long as you don't completely fall apart, you know, fine. But the recording process because it it makes things repeatable. Right, that you can go back and listen time and time again. It kind of amplifies those those issues. 
So if you have a timing problem or an intonation problem, uh, it becomes really obvious. And, and you have to have a certain amount of just kind of perfection in those, in those recordings because people are going to hear them. You know, some people, I mean, I've listened to some of these songs probably a thousand times. And that's not just because I'm a, I'm a scholar, but because, you know, just life. Um, so a session player has to be really precise, really consistent, and they have to work super fast. You know, a road musician can learn an entire show, and then you're going to repeat that show time and again. But remember, we were talking about how the sessions were you know, two and three sessions a day, four songs minimum per session. Those songs, they learned them day of the session. They learned them in the session. And in 45 minutes, would have to have a complete take, basically, on average. 45 minutes from the time they heard the song to the time they finished it. Uh, it was, that was 45 minutes. And so you can't... Uh, you can't be a road musician and a session player if your road skills don't also require like quick learning, uh, you know, an ability to be flexible, uh, you know, an ability to forget what you just did so that you could do the next thing and be original still. Um, and so a lot of road musicians didn't uh, just kind of didn't didn't fit in with that. On the other side of it, though, session players often had a hard time going back out on the road, not because of their musical skills, but because the demand was so great for them in the studios, they didn't have time to work on solo projects or to go out on the road. Um, a number of the musicians tried to put out an album every once in a while, but uh, you know, it's hard to even build you know, a, a summer tour when you've got 10 sessions a week. Uh, and so a lot of them maybe tried to play out on the road some. I know, and Charlie McCoy uh, is, is probably, the, in my mind, the most successful of those uh, in terms of managing to do studio work and be on the road stuff. Uh, but even he would admit that it was very difficult for him to find time to leave town because he was just so covered up with session work. Yeah, and Floyd Kramer, as you mentioned in the book, kind of had to move on from session work when he became a celebrated solo performer. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Connie Smith's Once a Day, and this features Ray Edenton's unusually tuned guitar and Weldon Myrick on steel doing an introduction that sort of became a trademark of Connie Smith Records. And when we come back, I want to ask you about this concept of musical brands and how the session musicians help specific artists forge specific musical brands. This is Connie Smith's Once a Day. When you found somebody new thought I never would forget you for I thought then I never could but time has taken all and that was Connie Smith singing whispering Bill Anderson's once a day all day long with Ray Edenton on guitar and Weldon Myrick on steel guitar. Tell us a little bit about Ray Edenton and the unusual tuning methods he did and how that played into creating a brand for Connie Smith. Yeah. Ray's a, Ray's a, a really a hilarious human being. I really interviewed him was a lot of fun. We did, we, uh, we joked a lot and he had, had a number of great stories. His, his background is as a, uh, 
is a road musician. He played uh, the, the Old Dominion Barn Dance and, and uh, did what he what they call the Lamplighter Circuit with with uh, a number of musicians, including Atkins, uh, back in the the late '40s. But uh, Edmonton was his big claim to fame was not playing a lot of lead stuff. He played a lot of rhythm guitar. He was just he was a locked in rhythm player, especially acoustic rhythm guitar. And one of the things that they they started to discover, they had two or three guitarists on a session, an acoustic player and an electric lead, and then they needed something for that third guitarist to do. It was just like they wanted to fill out the sound a little bit more. Um, And so he started to take the G string off of his guitar and replace it with a banjo string, which allowed him to tune it up an octave. Uh, And what it did was it gave kind of the sound of a 12-string guitar, uh, but basically the full flexibility of a standard acoustic. And it added this kind of high-end little shimmer to the guitar sound. Uh, it, was, it was really just, it sparkled, especially on the, the newer uh, LP recordings that were coming out in the 60s. Um, he discovered pretty quickly, though, that not only does the G string, if you can double that, but you can also double the, you know, take the, the B string up an octave, the E string up an octave, uh, the D string, and eventually he's got like half of a 12-string guitar step on this guitar, which gives it this beautiful shimmer. And uh, actually, probably the best place to listen for that is on the Everly Brothers record out of Nashville. She played rhythm on all of those with this, what what they call the Nashville tuning guitar. Um, It's got to the point where basically still today, anybody who plays session work regularly keeps one of their guitars strung with these, these smaller strings so that they can get a shimmer sound. Yeah, and, and read about how he worked with the Everly Brothers, and it was Don Everly that was the powerful rhythm guitarist of that combo, correct? Yeah, but, but Ray was on the uh, on all their sessions. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that. You've got this just cutting, smashing, right out in front rhythm guitar from Don Everly, and, and Edenton's style allowed him to perfectly complement that sound, just fit identify the sonic gap and just plug right in there. And and um, that's something I really appreciate about this book is that that's something I don't think non-musicians think about is sort of the sonic spectrum from low to high and, and how there's sort of different lanes and how these really clever uh, session musicians with these great ears will figure out, you know, we need a little more mid-range in here. I think I'll play this or, or you know, uh, the bass guitar is really hard to hear when you've got a bass drum going. What if I take this little cheap Dan Electro bass I've got and make a tick-tick sound? Tell us a little bit about um, the Bradleys and their famous tick-tick bass. Yeah, the, 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 the tick-tock bass was a, was a Dan Electro guitar uh, based in one of the early electric bass guitars, and uh, they were just the, the, the issue was that yeah, that upright bass has a great sound, but especially on car radios, which you know only had one tiny little speaker in the dash, or on the new transistor radios that were coming out, uh, they didn't just the bass was washed out. You didn't really hear it at all, um, and you know you probably your listeners have probably heard this for sure uh, if you listen to it. It's just a terrible little radio or the sound of speakers coming out of a, you know, a grocery store ceiling or something. And so they, you know, Harold Bradley had this guitar and, and it was, it was a junky guitar. The intonation was terrible. So you, you put your finger down for a note and it would be flat. Couldn't really use it for session work, but he discovered that if you palm mute it, to use the fleshy part of your, of your palm to mute the string and play it with a pick, it adds a click. 
that is really per- it's percussive, but it also gives that bass sound a little bit of an extra accent, a little bit of an extra boost. And so they started recording with two bass players. Bob Moore would normally play the upright bass, and Harold Bradley would play on this TikTok bass. And together, you get this kind of click, this sharp accent at the beginning of the bass note, and then the bloom of the note, this kind of woo that comes out of the upright bass. Uh, you want to listen to for that sound in really all of the Patsy Klein stuff recorded for Decca. Uh, that's, that became a sound, and Loretta Lynn stuff too. Uh, there's a lot of TikTok in that. Uh, and so again, you, you know, talk about, um, I actually have a, a really good story about this and musicians finding their, their niche within the frequency spectrum. Um, today, and I've been on sessions where this happens, uh, we might have everybody play all at once and then sit down at the mixing board and start pulling frequencies down that are too muddy or too, you know, too loud. Um, these musicians figured out how the instruments worked to such a degree that I heard a story from a, a recording engineer who worked for Columbia. And he said, uh, he wouldn't tell me what the session was. He said it was a, a, a charting song. It, uh, so for some reason, the, the main engineers were out for the day and basically were they were left with somebody who was very inexperienced. And so the, the engineer, this, this inexperienced engineer calls up uh, somebody and says, what do I do? You know, I've got this session that's coming in. And he said, just set all of your levels right in the middle have them do a take, play it back for them, and the musicians will adjust. And that's exactly how the Nashville musicians work. And I've seen it, like, work, I've watched some of these musicians work. They don't play where they don't need to play, and they do play where it's needed. And so when you mix it, you don't have to do a lot of adjusting because the musicians will do it themselves. They'll hear, oh, well, I'm too loud. I should, t- I should play softer, or I should take a step back away from the microphone. Um, and that's the sort of the thing that only comes with years of doing this, you know, day in, day out. Uh, and I've just, I've been so impressed as I've, I've dug deeper into the musicianship that these musicians bring. Um, they know when not to play. Uh, and in many ways, these musicians in the A-team were paid not to play as much as they were paid to play. You know, they were paid for their, their judicious behaviors and their, and their willingness to support a song, not for their need to just fill up the gap, right? And, and to just make sounds to make sounds. Yeah, there's not a lot of Charlie Parkers or Jeff Becks in this group. It's it's people who recognize, you know, a lot more Ringo Stars and George Harrison's kind of personality types that playing in service of the song. And I think it's Charlie McCoy I've heard talking about, you know, we're the frame on the picture and we never lose sight of... Um, the song and the lyrics being the, the picture. And, you know, talk, going back to the generational thing, there's four waves of, of session musicians in the A-team that you talk about. And kind of that fourth wave, a lot of these guys were R&B guys who came from Muscle Shoals, kind of led by Billy Sherrill, who was originally uh, Rick Hall's partner down in Muscle Shoals. But he came up to Nashville and sort of gravitationally pulled a whole crew of guys, Norbert Putnam, Don Briggs, Jerry Kerrigan, up to Nashville, how did they, how did they have to struggle to be accepted in Nashville? There was a certain amount of, of struggle for them just because they were out of towners and they were, uh, you know, they, they had a different background. They weren't opera musicians. You know, they, they didn't do the country thing. Um, but the, the part that I lean into a little bit more is it was clear that there was need for them. Uh, 
the, the, the swampers really start to come up to, to Nashville, really dig in at the end of the 1960s. And that's after Bob Dylan has been to town uh, and recorded with a lot of the 18 folks. And we're seeing more and more rock musicians and folk musicians and singer-songwriters come into Nashville to, because Nashville's got this Dylan authenticity vibe going. Um, and so the Muscle Shoals musicians were able to fill that gap very specifically, that they were able to play with the people coming with a more rock or, or singer-songwriter kind of uh, background in a way that you know, the 18 musicians might not have been able to, especially the original 18 folks who started out their careers playing with, uh, you know, with Ernest Tubb. Uh, you know, it's a, a pretty radical shift for them to, to work in this new, this new aesthetic. There was also, as you point out, you know, like Ernest Tubb was still making records. And so those original 18 musicians were keeping their accounts with the old musicians they'd always worked with. And so as new musicians came to town, a lot of times the, old, the older musicians wouldn't just give up their steady work to go work with a new artist. And so you know, they were able to build that, build that space for themselves, the Muscle Shoals folks. Um, and by the 1980s, the Muscle Shoals folks really dominate the, the recording scene. They're the old heads at, uh, at the table uh, doing this work. And so I, for all of the initial resistance that they might have felt, uh, it's pretty obvious that, uh, that they were they were accepted in the end. Absolutely. And let's hear a little bit of the fruits of their labors. This is uh, Tony Joe White's Poke Salad Andy. Mm. Some of y'all never been down south too much. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this so that you understand what I'm talking about. Down there we have a plant that grows out in the woods and the fields. Looks something like a turnip green. Everybody calls it poke salad. Poke salad. And that was Tony Joe White's Poke Salad Annie, featuring uh, some of the fourth generation of the Nashville A team. So going back to the the Muscle Shoals crew, one of them was Billy Sherrill, who goes on to really dominate the 60s and 70s, like you said, with those guys there. Talk a little bit about how he worked with uh, Charlie Rich and George Jones and brought kind of that Phil Spector sound to Nashville. Yeah, you know, Cheryl is such a remarkable uh, producer and arranger, uh, very hands-on as a musician. And you know, he would, would hands, not only hand-select all the musicians he wanted to play on things, but also uh, could sit down at the piano and play the parts that he wanted, you know, somebody like Big Robbins to play, um, and could make minute adjustments on the fly. Um, it's one of the things that's actually pretty fascinating about all of those producers. You know, Chet Atkins was a great guitarist. Owen Bradley was a great pianist, and so was Billy Sherrill, just a great, a great musician. So he could could, could adjust things on the fly like that. Um, what's really great about about Sherrill's productions to to my ear is that he understands the drama of the songs that, it, that he's producing. Uh, and so like all those great George Jones songs, like the grand tour, um, you listen to those songs and you get a sense that you're being brought into this world. Uh, it's not just a singer singing a sad song, but you're actually kind of like cinematically looking in. Um, and part, a large part of that Billy Sherrill's arrangements, so he had this ability to just kind of tastefully say, you know, I want a little bit of string here. 
right? And that you know, those those strings was kind of kind of ease into the to the scene to the point where you don't hear you don't actually hear that there's a, a string quartet back there, right? But you feel that they're there. Or like on uh, he stopped loving her today when Millie Kirkham's singing that that great ooh part, you know, and you get the sense there's kind of like a ghost in the room, right? Uh, the, the, but it's, it, that ghost is actually in the singer's mind, the speaker's mind. Um, he had a really great way of just bringing drama into the sessions. Um, and as far as what you're talking about, the Spectre sound, I mean, he would he would hire, you know more musicians than you would think it necessary to have in order to do, uh, in order to do a session. The Spectre was, was definitely good at that, but you hire a lot of musicians, but don't have them all play at the same time. You use them very tastefully, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, my favorite Cheryl story actually is one that, uh, that Charlie McCoy talks about. Um, he played on, on, uh, he stopped loving her today and apparently was hired and, and, and Cheryl forgot about it. Uh, forgot that he hired him, and so he kind of says, "Well, why don't you take a part, you know, on on this verse?" And it's you know the most iconic, uh, the most iconic playing that Charlie ever did, really. Um, and it's very simple; it's you know good bent notes, um, but it was an afterthought. And now to think about that that recording without it, you know, you, uh, I don't think you could. And so, yeah, Cheryl Cheryl's a real uh, a really important figure in, in, in uh, I think bringing high drama. To country music in the in the late sixties and seventies. And so, for our last question, I want to ask about one Nashville great or a country great who struggled with the Nashville sound system. And I'm talking about Willie Nelson. Why did it never really click with Willie and the A Team? Well, I don't know. I don't know the exact why, but I have a theory that I've, I've posited in the book, and I've, I've written about Willie in other places and. And because uh, Willie's my gateway into into country music in so many ways, but as I I started doing some work and you know, recognized that uh, was looking at the discography and found that Willie never got to play with the same session musicians from one basically from one album to the other. Um, even found where Willie uh, on one album they decided to do the entire second session for the album with a different group of musicians. Um, that runs counter to some of the stuff I found with like Connie Smith, who got to work with the same band for many albums in a row um, and developed kind of an iconic sound. I don't know if it was that Willie was hard to work with. He might have been at that point in his career. Uh, it, I don't know if it was that um, they didn't really believe in him as a solo artist, which I've definitely read and, and, and heard about elsewhere. They didn't think he could carry you know, you know, a, a, a national audience. Maybe they saw him just as a songwriter. But regardless, RCA never put the money in and the effort in to hire the same musicians from one to another, one album to another. And so he never got an iconic sound. If you listen to his stuff from the late 60s, it is the wildest stuff. Like there's a Western swing album, and then there's a, a hippie gospel album, and then there's a you know, straight ahead country thing. And it's like, what are we doing with this guy? And it's not until he breaks free from RCA, you know, they drop him and uh, his last album for RCA is, is uh, uh, yesterday. His, his, his last album is Yesterday's Wine, uh, which is his first concept album. And then he goes off to Atlantic and does some hippie, uh, hippie songwriter stuff. And then the outlaw thing is cooking for him. And he's written that outlaw thing, you know, since 1972 uh, in, in some variant or another. 
And so I think it has, I think there has to be a, a, a lot of effort or sorry, a lot of energy put into that theory that if RCA had just booked him with the same musicians from one album to the next, he might've had more success in the sixties. And I know that, you know, a lot of people look back at that period um, as evidence. I, I actually used to use, use this as evidence that Nashville didn't know good country music. Uh, I used to have a much sour view on this period in country music history. Um, and Willie was a part of it. But I think the truth is they didn't know what to do with him. So they put him with whoever. They tried too many concepts. And uh, ultimately, none of, them, none of them stuck. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of understanding how difficult it is to make a great record. And there's a lot of factors into it, chemistry, luck, and so on. And it's not just Nashville. You hear these same stories all over the place. There are hit songs Phil Spector could not make work, Twist and Shout, for example, or Chapel of Love that, that he couldn't do. But um, I guess it's been Travis D. Steinlein. And apologies about pressing the dog going crazy here. but the, Quite all right. <laughs> the book is Nashville Cats. I guess my dog doesn't like all this cat talk. Record production in Music City. Travis, it's been a hoot and a holler talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Julian Dawson to discuss his biography of Nicky Hopkins, Rock's Greatest Session Man. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.